It was a typically cold November night in Manhattan and late, though maybe not by New York's sleepless standards. 2 a.m., the first hours of November 28, 1953. The Seventh Avenue sidewalk across from Penn Station had its usual share of pedestrian traffic in front of the Hotel Stadler, the once and future Hotel Pennsylvania. And then there were screams. The night manager of the hotel, Armand Pastor, ran out to the sidewalk to see what had happened and found the wreckage of a man in his underwear and t-shirt, still alive, but barely. He was flat on his back, with his legs smashed and bent. The night manager looked up the high facade of the hotel and saw a blind pushing through an empty window frame, shifting in the wind. The man on the sidewalk had fallen from the 10th floor, actually more if you count the lobby and mezzanine, but he hadn't died. Armand Pastor said he was trying to mumble something, but I couldn't make it out. It was all garbled, and I was trying to get his name. The front desk called for a priest and an ambulance, in that order. By the time they arrived, the man on the 7th Avenue sidewalk was dead. It would be a long, strange, unpleasant morning for Mr. Pastor. When the police arrived, he took them to the room with the broken window, 1018A. There was no answer when they knocked, and so the manager used his key. They found a man sitting on the ensuite toilet with his head in his hands. He gave his name as Robert Lashbrook. He had been sharing the room with the dead man as a friend and a professional associate, accompanying him from Washington, D.C. to doctor's visits in the city. He said that he woke to the sound of breaking glass. When he turned on the light, the blinds were blowing in the wind through a hole in the window. Back at the reception desk, Armand Pastor asked the hotel's telephone operator if there had been any calls from 1018A. She said that there had been two. In one of them, a voice said, He's gone. The voice on the other end of the line said, That's too bad. The day after the incident, the New York Times announced the death this way. Plunge kills U.S. defense aide, a man identified as Frank Olson, a bacteriologist for the Defense Department in Washington, died early yesterday in a plunge from a 10th-story room of the Hotel Stadler. He was identified by Robert Vern Lashbrook, a Defense Department chemist. Mr. Lashbrook told the police that he had accompanied Mr. Olson here on November 24th, and his friend had seen doctors about a depressed state. They had planned to return to Washington today. What happened in that hotel room that night was a very public and very unwelcome display of the collateral damage incurred by one of the CIA's deepest, darkest secrets. Something that wouldn't even begin to be revealed for more than 20 years after Dr. Frank Olson jumped, fell, or was thrown from that window on 7th Avenue. I'm going to tell you what led up to that night in New York 
and I don't even need to delve into the many, many conspiracy theories that surround it. In fact, I promise that I won't. I'll just tell you the story like it happened, using my two favorite historical tools, primary source materials, mostly from the CIA, and common sense. Because this is one of the best icebreakers for understanding what was going on inside the CIA in those years, and how untethered science and technology in the service of intelligence and national defense had become from anything resembling ethical or basic operational norms. First and foremost, the story of Frank Olson has a greater meaning and a greater purpose. Keep that in mind, because in the final analysis, we will have to decide if it was a strange and isolated incident or a symptom of something deeper, more chronic, in the culture of the CIA. So, let's take a journey into the shadows. The strange case of Frank Olson, this time on the Cold War Vault. Dr. Frank Olson was a victim of his own bright mind, and I mean that in the most sympathetic and flattering way possible. His skills got him into very deep water with U.S. military and CIA projects, and it was deep water that his emotional state failed to navigate. At the University of Wisconsin, he earned his Ph.D. in bacteriology in 1938 under Ira Baldwin, who was the driving force behind the development of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program during and after World War II. That is some very serious business. Colonel William Cambridge, at the head of the U.S. Army Chemical Warfare Service, recruited Ira Baldwin to run the new bioweapons program. Baldwin had no ethical qualms with this, he said, you start out with the idea in war of killing people, and that to me is the immoral part of it. It doesn't make much difference how you kill them. Well, that's certainly some weapons-grade ethical rationalization. Thank you, Ira. Ira Baldwin then selected a site for the project that would become Camp and then Fort Dietrich in Maryland, which remains the repository for the nastiest germs known to humankind. Baldwin then went about populating the ranks of his new bioweapons program with people he'd worked with at the University of Wisconsin, including his former PhD student, Frank Olson. This also happened in the Manhattan Project. It's always the PhD students that get wrapped up in these things. It's all very exciting, until you see what you've gotten yourself into, and second-guess your calling. That may have been just what happened to Frank Olson. Through the war, he was a captain in the Chemical Corps, working on aerosolized anthrax and other similar weapons. And after the war, he became a civilian contractor, doing much the same thing for the U.S. Army. It's not entirely clear when he began working for the CIA, but it was likely at the outset of the CIA's scientific endeavors, and that was immediately at the outset of the CIA itself. 
The Central Intelligence Agency was created on the 26th of July, 1947, when President Harry Truman signed the National Security Act. The agency's fascination with science and pseudoscience of the mind was immediate. A small scientific branch in the Office of Reports and Estimates was merged with the Nuclear Energy Group of the Office of Special Operations, and the Office of Scientific Intelligence was born. The OSI fought to be the dominant organization in the federal government when it came to scientific intelligence, and by late 1951, it had become utterly fed up with efforts to undermine it. In a CIA memo dated November 29, 1951, OSI laid out its grievances, namely that it wanted to be the sole point of contact for intelligence in scientific matters and that other operational divisions needed to defer to its requirements and their projects needed to be tailored to its needs. The memo reads, OSI feels that its prestige and leadership in the intelligence community is being undermined, and the coordination it has achieved through the Scientific Intelligence Committee may be destroyed by ineffectual committee action unless it is recognized as leader and only point of contact on scientific matters within the CIA. Basically, OSI demanded to be the lord of its scientific domain, or else. Well, OSI got its way, and its fiefdom was established, and this paved the way for the most extraordinary excursions into matters of science, real and imaginary, ever attributed to the federal government. Among the most persistent obsessions of the CIA's scientific research pertained to what you might call and what they did call extraordinary interrogation methods. These would include hypnosis, the use of psychoactive drugs, and extreme isolation. But the agency's misadventures go so far beyond that. And that is the purpose of this series, after all. But for now, let's get back to Frank's story. As a civilian contractor after the war, Frank Olson worked under the CIA's Technical Services Staff, the TSS, an organization under the broader OSI, tasked with gadgets, disguises, forgeries, secret writings, and weapons, especially in those days, drugs for mind control. Today, it still operates as the Office of Technical Service, the OTS. As a senior bacteriologist in the Special Operations Division at Dietrich, Frank Olson's immediate supervisor was Colonel Vincent Rouet. But the hierarchies often get murky when the CIA appears. As Olson was working on projects for the TSS under the OSI for the CIA, <laughs> projects which were under the broad and infamous umbrella of something called MK Ultra, he was also very much under the control of the CIA's Sidney Gottlieb. Sidney Gottlieb was famous in spycraft circles for being the go-to man for dirty tricks and poisoning, and famous as the poisoner-in-chief 
according to Stephen Kinzer's 2019 biography of the man himself, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's search for mind control. Some of you might know him as the architect of MKUltra and its many tentacles, both real and imagined. In one of Sidney Gottlieb's many obituaries at his death in 1999, Rupert Cornwell, writer for The Independent, said of Gottlieb that he was living vindication for conspiracy theorists that there is nothing, however evil, pointless, or even lunatic, that unaccountable intelligence agencies will not get up to in the pursuit of their secret wars. By 1953, Sidney Gottlieb, his deputy Robert Lashbrook, and those under them, including Frank Olson, were deeply involved in a series of projects for MKUltra. A whole episode is upcoming on that, but for now, in the most general sense, this was an attempt to control minds using any means available, including stage magic, psychics, or in the case of the men at Dietrich, psychotropic drugs, which were not at all well understood in those years. The breadth of experimentation was truly stunning, but this story started at home, in-house, literally in a CIA house, a rustic retreat on the shores of Deep Creek Lake in Maryland. On Wednesday and Thursday, the 18th and 19th of November, 1953, 10 men from the Special Operations Division at Dietrich and Technical Services staff convened at a two-story log house on the water. The group met there once or twice a year to discuss their covert work and matters of mutual interest in a kind of top-secret mini-conference. The men trickled in, and by Thursday afternoon, the entire group had assembled. It was decided, probably by Sidney Gottlieb, head of the TSS, and Colonel Vincent Rouet, commanding officer of special operations, that this would be the perfect venue to see how LSD might affect a meeting or a conference such as the one they had convened there at Deep Creek Lake. It is often said that what happened next was an involuntary human experiment, but that's probably only half true. There were absolutely involuntary human experiments under MKUltra. Some fairly shocking, many clearly illegal, but interviews conducted afterward, recorded in documents that surfaced during a lawsuit by Frank Olson's family in 1975, explained the experiment slightly differently. And it's probably not something that goes on in your workplace, but I think it makes sense on its own terms. At some point, days or weeks before the Deep Creek meeting, it was agreed by all parties involved that they would participate in an unwitting LSD test without knowing when or where that might be. Again, everyone that was to be involved, this very small group of government biochemists, agreed to that general principle. 
Just knowing human nature, and how small this group was, I find it almost certain that some or all of the group had mulled over the possibility that the Deep Creek meeting might be the site for this experiment. I mean, it wasn't going to take place in the corridors of Fort Dietrich. It would surely be in a relatively isolated and controlled environment, which the cabin at Deep Creek Lake was. While the specifics of the test are frustratingly patchy and profoundly lacking, one unnecessary detail is present, accounted for, and verified. Cointreau. The subjectively delicious orange-flavored liqueur. Gottlieb dropped a small amount of pure Sandoz Pharmaceutical LSD-25 into the Cointreau. Only two of the men didn't drink the concoction. Gottlieb, who claimed a heart condition, and Colonel Rouet, who claimed to not drink alcohol at all. A convenient duo for the observation phase. Twenty minutes after the toast, to make sure that everything had been properly absorbed and there was no going back, the men were told that they had been dosed and that they were going to now engage in an experiment. This went about as well as you could expect. The LSD affected the group to the point that they were laughing, boisterous, and couldn't carry on a meaningful conversation. Beyond those details offered by a very sober Gottlieb, there is no record of what followed. What I can say is that the giggling phase of an LSD experience doesn't last. It gives way to deeper explorations of, I suppose, the mind or the palms of the hands. Or so I've been told. If you've ever been in a room like that, then you know what I mean, and you can probably guess what happened. Whatever the specifics might have been, Frank Olson was extremely displeased with his behavior. He and others had trouble sleeping on the drug, but by Friday morning, the LSD had worn off, and the group left Deep Creek Lake behind and set off for their various destinations, back to Frederick and Washington. But it wasn't over for Frank Olson. There's no record of the weekend that followed, or what might have been happening with his mental state. Not until the morning of Tuesday, the 24th of November. Frank Olson went to his boss, Colonel Rouet, and announced that he was depressed. Deeply so. And that he wanted to leave the group at Dietrich. He wanted to leave bioweapons and the program and his work with the CIA. Rouet called Sidney Gottlieb, who clearly felt that Frank Olson was suffering from depression, perhaps brought on by the experiment, but certainly posing a security risk. Frank Olson's mutual supervisors suggested that he see a psychiatrist in New York. A weird twist here, and something that has never looked great for the CIA in this case, was that Dr. Harold Abramson in Manhattan was an allergist and pediatrician. 
What might explain this oddity in the record is that Dr. Abramson had security clearance, and he had been working with LSD experimentation for the CIA. So it was off to New York City that very day, the 24th of November, with Colonel Rouet and Dr. Gottlieb's number two, Harold Lashbrook, as minders. That evening, they checked into the Statler Hotel, which had been the Hotel Pennsylvania and has that name again today if you're in the neighborhood and want to have a look for yourself. The group was obviously serious about getting to the bottom of whatever was haunting Frank Olson, because immediately on arriving in New York, the three of them, Olson, Rouet, and Lashbrook, all met with Dr. Abramson and briefed him on what had happened at Deep Creek Lake and Frank Olson's apparent state of mind. Remember, Abramson was cleared to hear all of these very secret details. The times and dates during this part of the story are taken from a very cold recounting of those final days in a CIA memo that was given to the Olson family in a large and confusing file during their lawsuit. So let me try and put the dates and times and places into a perspective that might seem a little more human, something that you can relate to. It was Thanksgiving time, and something profoundly dark was happening in Frank Olson's mind and things were going downhill very quickly. That night, Tuesday the 24th, that had started in Colonel Rouette's office at Camp Dietrich at 7.30 a.m., ended back at the hotel in Manhattan with a plan for an all-day session with Abramson the next day, on the 25th. Olson shared a room with Rouette, Things seemed as good as you might expect. And then on the morning of the 25th, they took a taxi to Abramson's office. The session lasted most of the day. The details are spotty to non-existent. To guess whether Abramson offered pills of some kind or something more extreme is pure speculation. After that marathon therapy session, the group returned to the hotel the night of the 25th, with the intention of going back to Washington, D.C. at 7.30 the next morning, the 26th, which was Thanksgiving Day. But Frank Olson was no better. And in fact, as the night went on, things got worse. At 5.30 in the morning, Rouette and Lashbrook woke up to get ready for the trip, and Rouette discovered that his roommate and charge, Frank Olson, was missing. They were assigned to be his minders, and they had somehow let him slip away. You can imagine the mixture of concern, frustration, and dread. They did eventually find him in the hotel lobby, obviously distraught. They asked him where he'd gone, and he said that he'd been wandering around for a while. The language of the memo doesn't get into matters of emotion that I'm sure the men were feeling in those moments, particularly when Olson said that he had torn up all of his paper money and all of the papers in his wallet. 
Later in the documents, when detectives go through Lashbrook's pockets and possessions, we are given a glimpse of what papers Olson might have been destroying. Lashbrook's wallet contained government identification cards and at least one encrypted safe combination. It's likely Olson had similar contents, linking him to his employment and very secret responsibilities at Camp Dietrich. After he had torn up his money, his IDs, and maybe a secret safe combination or two in the middle of the night roaming around Manhattan, he threw away his wallet as well. Take these actions at face value. You don't need to do much analysis to see that Frank Olson was having a nervous breakdown. The memo indicates that Olson was unable to remember where he had discarded the wallet and papers, meaning that Rouette and Lashbrook had asked, probably fearing a security breach. It's the little hints in documents like these that are the tips of vast icebergs. But like I said, it doesn't take much analysis. Apply these events to yourself, your own situation, your own state of mind. Forget about secrecy in the CIA or later mischaracterizations in interviews. Just look at what happened. The madness of these last days tells the story. Early on Thanksgiving morning, after having found Frank Olson in the lobby, the three gathered themselves together for the trip back to Washington from LaGuardia. They did not let Frank out of their sight. But on that trip, Frank Olson must have done something particularly insane, especially for a composed government man of the early 1950s. Did he cry? Did he scream? Did he try to jump out of the plane? None of that is reported, and we will simply never know. Though an interesting hint does come out later in the 2019 docudrama Wormwood. It's on HBO, and it's of interest because it has Frank Olson's son, Eric, commenting on what has been his lifelong obsession, namely finding out what really happened to his father. Eric says that when the trio got back to Washington, his father started doing handstands in the corner. It's not clear where or when this happened, and it's doubtful that the handstands alone triggered the severe response that followed. But respond, they did. On Thanksgiving, families and turkeys waiting after having just arrived on the 8 a.m. flight from LaGuardia, Lashbrook and Olson flew back to New York. The record only says the subject's condition was such that it was considered advisable that they return to New York immediately for further consultation with Dr. Abramson. They landed at 2 p.m. Then, by taxi, they made the trip directly to Abramson's house on Long Island and arrived at about 4 p.m. After another consultation, and too late to drive back into the city, Lashbrook and Olson got a room at the Anchorage Guesthouse at Cold Spring Harbor. They ate Thanksgiving dinner in a local restaurant. Does it frustrate you that you don't know where? 
Was it the local restaurant associated with the anchorage, or the place next door? It doesn't matter at all to the story. But on a deeper level, the imprecision really frustrates me. And that's because in that void of knowledge, conspiracies grow and thrive. And in that void, all of the humanity gets lost. And that is what has afflicted Eric Olson's life, Frank's son. We know what happened. It's laid out in perfect timelines. But we don't know why. And we don't know where Frank Olson ate his last Thanksgiving dinner any more than we know if he was thrown, fell, or jumped out of that window. In the morning, at 8.15 a.m., Dr. Abramson met Lashbrook and Olson at the Anchorage Guesthouse and drove them into the city to his office at 133 East 58th Street, which today has a massive Victoria's Secret on the ground floor, but still hosts many medical offices, just as it did in 1953. Here, it was decided that Frank Olson needed to go into psychiatric care, the Chestnut Lodge in Rockville, Maryland, was agreed upon. And this tells a story on its own, because the Chestnut Lodge wasn't just any psychiatric hospital. May I digress? I think I will. One day, sometime in the latter 1960s, Alan Dulles who had been the director of the CIA from 1953 to 1961, went to see his psychiatrist. It was a weekly appointment. In the waiting room, as one man entered the office and one man exited, Dulles recognized his former deputy and the then-director of the CIA, Richard Helms. Both of these top men at the agency had been seeing the same psychiatrist at the same hospital, with the days carefully scheduled so that they would never meet in the waiting room, until there was a confusion on the calendar. According to a senior medical official there on the day, the men were equally amused, with a shared compassion about their need for a trained and security-cleared listener. The location of this meeting, of course, was the Chestnut Lodge. The Chestnut Lodge was a psychiatric hospital in Rockville, Maryland, It was an old Victorian hotel with room for about 90 patients, half an hour away from Dietrich and Frank Olson's family. It was, until its closure in 1997, one of the most preeminent private mental health facilities in the United States, with famous doctors and many even more famous patients. It was the go-to facility for VIPs in Washington, D.C., which was also just about half an hour away. The wait time for one of the 90 inpatient beds, no matter how famous you were, was two weeks to a month, usually with an interview conducted off-site by doctors. This was clearly waived for Frank Olson, who was apparently immediately admitted without an interview. He was given a spot after Abramson and Sidney Gottlieb agreed on the course of therapy in a short telephone conference that afternoon with Olson and Lashbrook in the office. Of course, we can see that without a doubt, the interested parties, the Army and the CIA, wanted Olson under serious observation, if not care. 
as quickly as possible. Frank Olson agreed to all of this. He needed help, and he knew it. Whatever had happened during the day and the week that had preceded it left him certain that he needed a change. That afternoon, Lashbrook and Olson returned to the Statler Hotel and checked in. Things seem to have stabilized in those hours, which suggests that Abramson might have given Olson something to ease his nerves. But again, that's just speculation. They watched television for a while and then went to the hotel cocktail lounge. Like good 1950s men, they each had two martinis. Then they moved into the main restaurant for dinner. Lashbrook later said that they didn't continue drinking during the meal. This is an important point because Lashbrook also said that Frank Olson was cheerful and in a considerably better mood, more relaxed than he'd been in a long time. A little before 10 p.m., Olson called home from a telephone box in the lobby, and then at 10, they went back to their room, number 1018A. Lashbrook called Colonel Rouette, who agreed to meet the arriving plane at 9.30 the next morning. For the next hour or so, they watched TV. They either watched the game show Down You Go, the interview show Person to Person, or the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports, which was mostly great boxing matches. Given that the last time they had stayed in the hotel, Frank Olson had disappeared in the middle of the night, Lashbrook took the bed closest to the door. But as we know, Frank didn't leave that way. Lashbrook woke to the crash of breaking glass. And the rest was history. Actually, it was kind of the opposite of that. Actually, Frank Olson's story went down the memory hole. To make sure that particular episode in the long story of the CIA's human experimentation stayed down that memory hole, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, and Sidney Gottlieb, architect of many of the suspect projects, had an idea with at least the illusion of a moral spine to it. They would burn all of the records. Not just Frank Olson and the Deep Creek Lake incident, but all of MKUltra. Burn them and scatter the ashes to the Potomac. Richard Helms explained the decision when he finally had to answer for it after investigations in 1975 brought the whole thing to light. His reason for destroying the records, what he thought would be all of the records in January 1973, was that they contained the names of individuals and institutions who had helped materially in ethically questionable experimentation and in turn had been reimbursed financially, sometimes very richly. The agreements between these individuals institutions and the CIA necessarily promised secrecy. 
So there at the start of 1973, Richard Helms was getting ready to retire. And Sidney Gottlieb, whose name was linked to all of the documents in one way or another, and who was also getting ready to retire, suggested that they just wouldn't need all the clutter anymore. Why not just get rid of all the files? Helms thought this was a fine idea, and the records were down the memory hole. Even for an organization with such notoriously bad archival record-keeping as the CIA, this was an extraordinary transgression of U.S. government norms. Ah, but that bad record-keeping is what would bring Frank Olson back to life. On December 22, 1974, the New York Times ran an article by famed journalist Seymour Hersh titled, Huge CIA Operation Reported in U.S. Case Against Anti-War Forces, Other Dissidents in Nixon Years. And this article started a serious wave of concern, both inside and outside the government, about the CIA's extra-legal activities. President Gerald Ford's administration set up an investigative commission in early 1975 to get to the bottom of the CIA's shadowy dealings and possible illegal transgressions in the previous two decades. This came to be called the Rockefeller Commission, after its chair, Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. Its single final report made public the existence of MKUltra, and the mind control projects under that umbrella. The Senate launched its own, much larger investigation called the Church Committee that investigated broad-ranging overreach by the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, and even the IRS. Between these investigations, what truths were left to be found did come to light in 1975, and Frank Olson's family was furious. It only took a matter of days for the family to connect a certain suicide described in the Rockefeller Commission report to Frank Olson. They brought their story to the public eye through that same Seymour Hirsch that had started the Fuhrer. Eventually, this would result in the release of a trove of documents, and continued investigations would result in the discovery of files that had not been destroyed they had been saved from immolation by being misfiled in a financial records repository. 20,000 pages, by most accounts. And that is how we know what we know about MKUltra today. The family also received a personal meeting and apology from President Gerald Ford and a financial compensation of $750,000. But the family, and especially Eric Olson, believed that there was a deeper truth, or a greater meaning. He is shown still pursuing this in HBO's Wormwood, which is certainly worth watching if you're interested in this story. But it's a bit of a tragedy, because that greater meaning that has been a lifetime search is right there to be found. Whether Frank Olson was pushed, thrown, or jumped out of that window, and whether he was depressed for two years before the events of that week, as some sources claim, or the LSD was the trigger, 
his tragedy can be laid entirely on the culture of the CIA at the time, because there were no bounds. As I said at the start, the story of Frank Olson does have a greater meaning because it shows the CIA at work, warts and all. There were no masterful conspiracies to cover his death. In fact, the crisis seems to be of the CIA's own making. Whether from the insensitivity and detachment from common sense exhibited to use a top bioweapons chemist with depression issues in a spooky drug experiment, or just the obliviousness necessary to not identify the major security risk in their midst posed by a clinically depressed bioweapons chemist with very, very high security clearance. Any way you cut it, the fault is the culture of the CIA. Or at least Sidney Gottlieb's CIA. The story is important because it also exposes the fact that there was no high-minded science in the age of MKUltra. It was all just untethered imagination, without accountability and with the moral blank check issued by the fear of the encroaching communist empires of China and the Soviet Union. The CIA would stop at nothing to defend against those enemies. The story of Frank Olson offers a very personal lens through which to view this era of the CIA's investigations into science and its fairly chronic transgressions of ethics. And it's also the perfect starting point to investigate the wildest excursions into the scientifically bizarre that fell under MKUltra and its project cousins. We'll take that trip next time on the Cold War Vault. Thank you for listening to the Cold War Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. And that's me. Music you've heard on this show is by Kai Engel. Fun announcement, the Cold War Vault gift shop is now open. Shirts, mugs, and anything you might expect from a gift shop in a bunker. Find it at coldwarvault.com. That's also where you can find all of the show notes for this show and anything else you've heard on The Vault. In this new year, I would like to ask you a favor. If you like the show, please take a minute or two to write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Like and subscribe on Facebook at Cold War Vault. And as far as Twitter goes, I really don't care what you do. I wish the whole platform nothing but ill. It's a menace to civil discourse. So, until next time... Whatever you do, dude, don't look at your face in the mirror. You'll freak out, man. You'll freak out. (laughs) You'll freak out.